0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Start a Puzzle, brought to you by FullScale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Start a Puzzle. Matt DeCorsi here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. Manufacturing, it's everywhere. And some would say it is a cornerstone of... America, the American dream, and the American worker. And in the history of America and the world, we have manufactured a heck of a lot of stuff. And with that, there's always someone looking to try to do it better, faster, and cheaper. That's what we're going to talk about during today's show. Now, before I get too far into that, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Let's talk for a second about the great state of Minnesota and Minneapolis in general. Well, what, but wait, there's a Twin City right next to it. So we're going to talk about a couple cities. Today's guest and company is on the startup hustle list of top Minneapolis, I should probably say Twin City startups, although we did title that top Minneapolis startups. With us today, we've got Sonny Han, and Sonny's the founder and CEO of Fulcrum. You can go to fulcrumpro.com. There's a link in the show notes for that. Fulcrum's a software as a service company that specializes in ERP, MRP, and MES platforms allowing small and mid-sized manufacturers to improve efficiency through workflow optimization and automated data collection. Man, that's a lot to talk about. Let's just start by saying, Sonny, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I like to always start a show by asking, you know, no one really tells the story better than CEOs and founders. Uh, what's your backstory with Fulcrum and how, and what brought you to being one of our top startups in Minnesota?
1: I think most transparently, it's just a series of crazy accidents, uh, one after the other. Uh, as a kid, I was early on the internet. My mom was a computer science student here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I was on Bolton board systems and playing video games online even as like a seven and, seventh and eighth grader. I uh, built a couple of bulletin board system games randomly and uh, sold them for a few hundred dollars as a kid. So uh, I think I was just always tooling around. Um, in, in college, I decided not to do anything with with computers. I think I wanted to learn something new, but eventually my career came back to it. So. I started the company six years ago, we started as a consultancy, I had already seen this need for software for smaller businesses, for manufacturers that were actually doing the work, this trend in manufacturing where big companies like Ford used to do everything, right, very vertically integrated. Now in in 2021, a vast majority of the parts that go into the things that you use, they're not made by the big companies that design them they're made by small manufacturers and increasingly they're becoming more and more important to the ecosystem so um when i started the company i knew that the product was like really big and really wide i'd read a lot from paul graham from a lot of other blogs about how to start companies and what to do and i think one thing that we've done that's been contrarian is that we've built a really big portion of the product mostly because we tried to build small tools that just didn't work very well. They didn't integrate very well. They didn't deliver enough value. And we just expanded that footprint wider and wider until we got to a minimum viable product that actually could be sold. And so that's where we are today. So we spent we spent four years doing that and turned into a product company just uh, just under a couple of years ago and have grown uh, rapidly ever since, just closed a series A a month ago, so.
0: Yeah, that's that's not an uncommon path that I've found, you know, over recording seven hundred episodes of this show. And thank you for those of you that have been listening for so long. But oftentimes, uh, you know, consultants or businesses themselves are building internal tools because there's nowhere to buy them um, or or get them and customize them. The next thing you know, you've Well, you oftentimes find yourself with a Franken platform. Uh, It sounds like you kind of went through that phase and then you got to get them all together. Now, for those of you that are listening, go to com because I I think this is pretty cool. So, um, you know, so and let me get let me digest this properly early here in this episode so that you're increasing the visibility of the supply chain is that maybe is that maybe one of the broadest terms to, to say what your platform does cuz when i'm looking at it, it you know and and like you said i think a lot of people don't realize that so many of the things that we use are built by like 50 different companies and then it's maybe assembled by one. The problem is, and one of the things that we're finding right now in the U.S. supply chain with cars is you know, chips are in short supply and they're not able to see things coming. But without all the parts, you can't build the product. So was that the initial was that the initial approach was to try to increase visibility or was there something else in mind?
1: For me, the idea started from just visiting hundreds of different manufacturers in my career. Um, I, I worked with a lot of them as a consultant, uh, implementing software, doing turnaround analysis, a bunch of different roles. And it, it's not even just chips, right? Like a, a big RV company that, that, I, that we know of here at Fulcrum, they had tens of thousands of units of RVs sitting undeliverable for want of a bolt, not even a chip. Just a, a bolt that came from China that, that had too long of supply chains and the demand went, went too high. So they had to find somebody locally to build it. And I think that's the key is that manufacturing things seems easy because we've scaled it up so much, but it's actually a bit of a craftsperson type of work. There's a little bit of a artisanal aspect to it. It's actually difficult to really understand the mechanics behind how to take a tool and put it in a machine to make a part. Um, I think some of us discover this when we think we can build stuff in our garage and realize that we don't have the tools for it or the knowledge. Um, but yeah, th- that, that's why I think there's a, a lot of really beautiful knowledge that's out there in these small businesses that allows them to do something really well. And that's why they're relied on, on to build it. So the product that we have is we're, we're trying to bring these operational systems for a company to the technology level that we have now in the 21st century. Um, I, I think the fortunate and unfortunate part of manufacturing is that they were the first industry to adopt technology, a CNC machine, a, con- a computer controlled machine to build parts. They were some of the first computers that weren't research computers were sold, built for and deployed to manufacturers to help them be more efficient. They were the first systems to use databases to help them do purchasing and MRP stuff. These concepts are 20, 30 years old. Unfortunately, all the systems that are out there are fundamentally based on architecture and technologies. That's 30, 40 years old. So the easy part, the kind of cheap part of what we do is simply leveling up what already exists to what we have now in terms of uh, software architecture and even business architecture and how we do business with them. And then on top of that, because we're able to do a lot of things, we're able to be a a cloud-based web application, we can use a lot more functionality, um, design processes and deliver new things like live data to these customers, which then helps that visibility you're talking about. Instead of having to walk the shop floor or print out a piece of paper and and walk it from one end of the shop to the other to get a conversation with somebody else, you can send a message through Fulcrum where you can see the data live. So things that are just obvious, like if you sat in my seat, I'm not seeing anything super insightful. I'm just seeing very obvious things where I'm taking what's available to almost all customers, business customers that are using software and applying it to something that's really old.
0: Yeah. If you're not brilliant on the basics, you're not going to be brilliant on much else. This is something I've come, come to learn. And, you know, some of the things that are included for those of you listening in the Fulcrum product, you have everything from like quality control, quoting, purchasing, job tracking, job scheduling, job costing, inventory and real time data. Now, once again, when one of those processes in manufacturing breaks down, it's highly problematic and. Uh, yeah, I think we're, we've learned a lot about that here in America in the last couple of years, everything from toilet paper to computer chips to, I mean, I, I honestly, Sonny, I've had multiple people on the show, every, everybody from like a beef manufacturer to, uh, you know, people that make LEDs that have been affected in some way by the supply chain. But yeah, that visibility and increasing that is important. Now, one of the things that I would think would be a challenge with a product like this is you gotta get adoption on both sides of the transaction. Meaning like if you, if I wanna know when my bolts are being made, I gotta get the bolt maker to put some input into Fulcrum. Has that been a challenge? Yeah, absolutely. Most of
1: the existing systems, just like almost every other industry that's been transformed, like toast has transformed uh, restaurants and you know, talk has transformed restaurant reservations and Salesforce came into a really fragmented market. Similarly in manufacturing, there's hundreds and hundreds of systems that are made for very, very niche providers, which makes it impossible to form this network, right? This automated supply chain. So for us, a big challenge is building something that everyone can use and still be best in class while being generalized to almost every manufacturer that's out there. So uh, a lot of times it's just us stumbling upon really great solutions that some of our customers are using some of the times it's us having some inspiration uh, just from thinking about it from a different perspective. But I think that's been the most fun is being able to find answers that other people didn't think existed to try to, like you said, be applicable to both sides of that network so that you can actually form these connections.
0: So is it, and I, I just, you know, as I admitted before we hit record, I I'm not highly knowledgeable about product manufacturing. So I'm gonna kind of sit in the seat of, of of the layman here that wants to learn more about it. I would think that, that huge manufacturers may have built their own systems and software over time. It, one, is that true? And if it is true, does that mean that you're aiming more towards the small and mid-size shop? There's a
1: lot of Uh, competitors that are out there that started with a big company. They built a system for Boeing, for example, and then tried to pivot it to smaller businesses. Uh, There are companies here in Minneapolis like um, 3M that have been trying to create a network of their suppliers for a long time. And they've since switched from a custom system to SAP. And so I think there's a movement. A lot of them have had or still do have some proprietary portion of their business but more and more they're building on top of the platform of some of these larger erp companies that you've heard of like oracle or sap so um most of the time though those systems just are way too onerous for a smaller business imagine at at a big manufacturer you have 140 production planners and 30 purchasing planners at a smaller business you might be the owner and you're doing both of those jobs and then two others right so the systems are just fundamentally not architected for that level of speed and that level of kind of cross-functional collaboration that all happens in your head instead of in some meeting somewhere. So our, our, our focus is and continues to be in that mid-market in for the companies that are actually doing the primary fabrication of the components that go into these parts.
0: So when you looked at Fulcrum, and you think about, so I'm the founder of Gigabook.com, which is that's a scheduling platform that mainly serves people that don't have an industry-specific scheduling platform, um, and I and I'm well versed with the complexity of trying to think out if then scenarios across a gazillion industries or whatever. Um, how, how much of a challenge was that? Cause you say manufacturing, that's kind of like saying software. I sure. mean, it's that general, like that is literally like a top level parent category, not even a child category in most hierarchical graphs. So, you know, manufacturing, I mean, you, that could be brooms, that could be computer chips that could be rare earth minerals, you know, like, so how do you, how did you, uh, How did you approach building a software platform that could be, you know, well, that would hopefully that people from tons of different industries would hopefully hopefully find utility in? Yeah, we we had to slice it off somewhere. Right. So there are some boundaries that we cut that we might
1: move into in the future, but we're not moving into right now. So for us, really long run production, if you're making all the world's ball bearings, you're probably not a really good customer for us. Um, and if you're just making a couple of here and there out of your garage and you're make, making $50,000, $100,000 in revenue, you're probably not a good customer for us either. For us, we wanted to create this network of manufacturing. So we, we wanted to focus on what are the common shared themes among them. And we boiled it down internally to thinking about it as you get some material, you have some energy, most likely electricity, put into some machine that then does something to that material and makes it more valuable for somebody else. And so within that value chain, within the production of all these things, things like scheduling become a lot more um, common between these different companies. They may have different constraints. You might have a machine that takes you and me and two other people to operate, or I might be in a CNC machine shop that's very automated and one of me plus some robots can operate five machines at the same time. So there's some there's some variances in there, but the core problem is that as we continue to go forward, we're not really mass producing things anymore. And I think that's good for civilization. It's good for humanity because we don't want generic things as consumers. We want more and more personalized things, better quality things that are produced by, you know, better quality machines and better quality artisans. And as the industry is moving in that direction, a lot of these long run production techniques just aren't as, um, as dominant in the marketplace. And I personally believe that there are millions and millions of inventions and producible goods that don't have a market for a billion people that are still really valuable, right? Like there are things that you can make 10,000 of. And what I wanna do is I wanna provide this network to be able to create the economy of scale for those producers to be able to inject those ideas in the marketplace as well. So, um, I mean, we can get a little bit deeper into it. I think at the other end of things, there's companies like Relativity Space that are 3D printing entire rockets and there's Invisalign braces that are being 3D printed. I think there's a a, a market for that out there too, super highly personalized. But I think that once Relativity has a market that is larger than a certain amount, that company is going to create the tooling, create the manufacturing facility to make it in mass. So I, I think there's still, for the majority of the useful things that we produce and manufacture, it's going to be this mid market that's going to drive it going forward.
0: Yeah, I think we're probably in for some uh, big changes, to say the least. Just, I think that. Uh, I think that Americans, the American economy and just North America in general, probably realize that we might need to make a couple of things closer to home or run out of them uh, at times of need. So that's a, But, you know, when it, one thing that that business school teaches you on pretty much the first accounting class you take when you do managerial accounting and your learning costs and everything is labor and supply chain have a huge have a huge effect on the price that you have to charge and your profitability. And if you can't do it, like, you know, we always say better, faster, cheaper. Well, this kind of stuff is part of it. Now in the modern world of software as a service, it feels like you have to integrate with like 10 million different things, which I see about 50 on your website that you've had to connect to. And then some of them are are, uh, API hubs like Zapier, which help you connect to another thousand or so. Um, how, how much of a, how much of a pain in the ass has that been? Cause I would imagine that there are, the biggest. The, yeah, I, w- I would imagine the, the, you probably have to connect to like, we it, like gigabook or the things that I'm used to, like do QuickBooks, Google, you know, outlook, things like that. Uh, it, has that, has that been a big challenge? Yeah, I think especially
1: with these legacy systems, these older ones that have just been implemented however you want it to be line. The data is not where you want it to be. People use fields for different reasons. Like there's a, a harder way to create some sort of social contract between your system and the system that you're integrating with. But I think it's also really important. I, I think I hinted to it earlier. We tried going down the route of making just a scheduling um, module or just a job tracking module or just a quality module. But it was so much of a pain in the ass to get information into the system, double enter it, pull it out of another system, integrate with it, that building the entire Fulcrum platform took less time than building all the integration support that we need for all of these different legacy platforms. So while we integrate with a lot of systems and we, continue to, we will continue to, we're moving really quickly further and further away from being just a module, which is helping a lot with that integration problem.
0: With me today, I've got Sonny Hahn, the founder and CEO of Fulcrum, also a member of our top Minneapolis startups. Go to fulcrumpro.com to learn more about what they're doing. As a quick reminder, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. I got a question about that. How difficult has it been to build, retain, and grow a software team for your SaaS platform?
1: We've had great retention uh, on the hiring side for us, it's just a lot about work. We've we've sent over 5,000 personal outbound messages on LinkedIn and other platforms. We've used systems like, um, you know, we've used recruiters, we've used hiring platforms using Indeed and Hired and all these different places. And for us, it's just interviewing a lot of people, talking to them and we've built, I think the biggest asset that we have is our team. We have a, a great team from engineering, from sales, all the way across the board. Now, if there was a way to do that faster and get the same level of talent, maybe we'll we'll reach out to full scale it and, and see what they have to offer. <laughs> um, but for us, we're we we're here, sort of- we're
0: here to field your we're here to field your call if that occurs. Yeah. Sure. Three, 300 three, 350,000 open tech jobs as of the time that we recorded that. That's just in the US. And that's crazy. You know, that's crazy cuz software is a form of manufacturing in many ways and when the supply chain is empty, it is it is a challenge. Uh, we talked a little bit about competition earlier, um, and you know I'm curious about like n- not as much competition. Competition will guide you in many ways, but so will people. You mentioned getting a Series A earlier. I'm curious about what your process was for rounding up that cash, and any other comments you have about other people that may have invested, guided, mentored, or had a big put a big footprint in your in your timeline. I think that every
1: step of the way we've had in my what looks to be an accident on my end uh, meeting great people in the early days it was an individual here named Phil Soren he's been really formative to the way that I think about things he'd started um, Compellent and Zio Tech and sold them both to big companies and, and done really well he was it connected me with a lot of people. For our seed around, uh, David from Motivate in Chicago uh, really believed in us and and put a a big uh, part of our current momentum forward, he added to that. And other investors too, like Julian from Schematic Ventures that invests specifically in supply chain and manufacturing. Six years ago, when, when I first started the company, my biggest fear was that no one was talking about supply chain, no one was talking about manufacturing. Could we even get anybody interested? But you know, folks like um, you know Ajane and Kevin at, at Bain and uh, Michael at, at Battery and locally here, Bread and Butter, Mary and, and Brett and Stephanie there at at, at Bread and Butter and, and also Ryan at, at Matchstick. Like we've we've got incredible investors around the table that we didn't really think we'd have access to at all. Um, and and there's a bunch of others. There's there's Darren from Inbox Dollars who's been really supportive as well. Um, and then this most recent round all of those connections, all the pitches that I did, instead of having to source them all myself, they were all connections from these investors. So, um, you know, having having some, some great investors lead that round and, and work with us, it's been been kind of a dream. And the, the CEO of, of um, Procore that just went public and the CEOs and, and co-founders of Service Titan uh, are, are also in the investor group now and and having their voices and, and having their combined knowledge of doing the same thing that we're doing, but for construction and for service, all really amazing. Again, lucky, happy accidents that, that we've stumbled into. So. How,
0: how many, uh, how many initial calls, emails, or pitches did you have to participate in before you got your, that first, uh, outside dollar in? We did,
1: th- we, we met 48 different firms and multiple pitches for many of them um, over the course of almost four months to get seven term sheets all within a week, (laughs) three and a half months of feeling like no one was going to invest. And then a bunch of, of term sheets, I'm very, very grateful for at the end of that, but a lot of work and hundreds and hundreds of cold outbound emails sent just to get first meetings and lots of no's that, you know, I begged for referrals that became another, pitch that was a no that became another pitch that then became the person that that actually wanted to invest so uh, a long road but a lot of great people along the way that 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 really made that chain happen right
0: so what's a little bit of advice that you could give to someone that wants to raise capital I think it's really important to talk to a lot of
1: people uh, at first I wanted to avoid that right like the dream is obviously to talk to as few people as possible raise the capital but I think one, talking to people, I also expected to get a lot of answers about our business from investors, which I think is unfair, right? They're meeting you for the first time and listening to you tell them about what you want to talk about for a very short amount of time. But I think what it helped me do is it helped me to organize some of my thoughts because I needed to prepare to pitch them. So I think talking to investors is really important to, to formulate thoughts. And then I think also it's okay to reach out blind and get a no. Most of these investors, if you're writing a personal enough email, it's, it's no different than a show email to do cold outbound. If you make it really, really personal, they'll respond to you. They'll make referrals. They'll introduce you to other people, but fundamentally doing the research and having a real reason to say, this is the right investor for us versus this is a really well-known investor that I would love to work with because it would add brand value to me, but I have no reason they've never invested in a company like ours. I think that's where most of my mistakes were. We're chasing brands that weren't even investing in B2B SaaS because they had good names and good brands. And I think once we switch to, okay, who's invested in manufacturing in B2B SaaS, who's done vertical um, you know, software SaaS investment and use that as a way to filter it, much smaller field but much better conversation so those I think are my two biggest pieces of advice
0: you mentioned something about six years ago you felt that no one was talking about manufacturing or supply chain um, and that that has to have changed in the last 18 months For sure. um, how have you how have you seen it change and what and 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 what's the why behind it even before covid uh, it started changing I think mostly
1: because people like the industry is just at the beginning end of a huge generational change, right? 50, 60, 70 year old owners of businesses are passing them on to employees and on to children. So I think it's just starting to happen, which means that there's a lot more people talking about it a- aside from what we're doing. And I think that seeps into just the general conversation. I think also, even before COVID, we were seeing a lot more fast fashion, a lot more Kickstarters, a lot more new products that were going straight to these manufacturers. And they didn't really know how to deal with them. There were, you know, companies that, that you know, came out of Shopify and having an e-commerce website that needed to build things, board games. I think a lot of consumer-based conversation about manufacturing happened. And then of course, COVID itself and, uh, how much it disrupted supply chains, put it to the forefront, and people started to think about things differently. They had to. So one of the biggest things that COVID did for us is that before COVID, at least a half of the customers we talked to were very concerned about cloud, not even because of security, just because of, could we make it work? And because they've had to make it work because they've had to have their designers at home and and their engineers in, at home, but also the, the shop floor employees in the in, on the shop floor. Um, they're using Zoom, they're using Slack, and it's just a non-question. The Very, very few people talk to us about how they don't think cloud is the future. So I think that cloud adoption really boosted us from a, I'm never even going to consider somebody that's not on-premise, to, okay, this is actually possibly a really good thing for us.
0: Seems like s- so many industries have that evolutionary tipping point that is so often um, lit a fire by a flamethrower more than a spark, you know. And it's just something, uh, you know. You look back at uh, my business partner, Full Scale Matt Watson. You know, in the in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, they had an auto, you know, like a car dealership product. But car dealers were making a ton of money prior to that. Because was, there was a lot of meat on the bone when people were pulling all this equity out. They were buying a lot of things, buying them quickly and uh, making bigger purchases than they would normally. And then all of a sudden, you got to learn to tighten up the belt and, and do things a little better, faster and cheaper. Um, yeah. And I think overall, like with manufacturing, it doesn't surprise me to hear that some of it's generational too, because, you know, the... Uh, I I am kind of a nerd when it comes to history. So I'll I'll bite any history, I'll bite on any history channel series that's like the something that built America, you know, and there's about there's about 40 of those now. So I've gotten pretty well acquainted with with some of that. And some of it's really surprising too, like how difficult uh, so much of it is and was and Then also some of the stubbornness, you know, you even have people that are, that are pretty well-known and profound innovators and creators. You look at guys like Henry Ford that just wouldn't change. I mean, they rode the, the model a, um, you know for a long time and that came in any color you wanted as long as it was black so there was a lot of line diversity there but you know you know how that goes all right so all right so you raise you have a product you get some traction you raise capital yeah we may I just made that sound a lot easier than it probably was but now you got to get out there and you got to find a new market you got to find customers and and get get the right people to listen so how did you go about doing that? How do you bring this whole product to a bigger, broader market and do it uh, in a way that made you, makes you stand out? For us, we, we
1: started off by changing the entire business model. So in these larger enterprise systems that span your entire business, oftentimes there's a consultant that's doing the search for you. They're doing the implementation. They're doing some billable hours. Um, oftentimes you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars at the very least paying for upfront licensing from, for us, from the pricing all the way up, we engineered the whole business to be different. So for us, no per user fees, whatever the the fee is for your company per month, that's it unlimited use. One of our customers somewhat grossly called it an all you can eat buffet you can use it as much as you want put put as much data on there as you want to we'll do the implementation with you and for you we'll we'll do as much of it as you need we'll we'll work with your consultants if you want but we'll also provide a lot of services with no additional charge to help create reports and help implement things and customize things so for us we want to do the incentives between us and the customer as best as possible and that i think sets us apart just from what we don't need to do in the sales process. We don't need to include a consultant. We don't need to do a big dog and pony show. We are able to just do some light configuration live in front of you in the demo. And we are able to have a non-scripted demo because the product is really versatile instead of having to you know, spend two weeks customizing it exactly for you to do one short kind of walkthrough demo. So a lot of the way that we're architected both business and, and, and software technology, allows us to just feel very different through that entire sales process.
0: Yeah, I would think that it would be kind of tricky to target an exact buyer. And, you know, like, and I just use, I'll use full scale as an example. And, you know, the sponsor today's show, it's the business I own with Matt Watson. And, you know, I'm able to narrow down an advertising pool, sometimes to people that just have a job title, like a CTO which will bring it down to a pretty small number. And then, you know, be able to kind of tweak that a little bit based on company size or location or revenue or how old the company is and stuff like that. Manufacturing, like I mentioned earlier, is kind of like saying software. And it's easy to, I think if you're an early stage founder and you're looking at your product and you're going, wow, anybody could use this. You're going to later have a moment where you're going to go, oh, wow, anybody could use this. It's the same word said different, and the thing is, is like unless you have Super Bowl ad money, uh, you can't reach all those people. You got to learn how to target them and how to go after them. And uh, with that, I'm just curious, like what's been the most resounding yes, and the strong, and also the loudest no, when it comes to like possible a- adoptees or adoptors of your product. On the no side, there are a bunch of people that are still very much,
1: if they don't own it, they have to pay for it on a monthly subscription. Even if the total cost of ownership over seven, 10 years is way lower, that's a, a big no for a lot of people that are very old hmm. school about owning the things that, that they use. I think that's waning. I think more and more things are becoming SaaS, but that still is a no in manufacturing. And I, th- I think it's because you know some of the other assets they buy, that they capitalize, like machines, cost a half a million dollars and they can use it for a long period of time. They're just used to that way of spending money. So that's still a no for a lot of people. On the yes side of things, almost all of our ideal customers are on LinkedIn. They, almost all of them are um, either Really early adopters of just about everything, or they're just taking over a department or production or something. They're uh, the the next generation that's that's up and coming. They kind of maintain some of the glue that duct tapes all these older systems together. That is another kind of resounding yes. And and I think a third one is just somebody who is starting fresh, a new business owner that graduated from uh, school with a mechanical engineering degree and designed something and wants to make it and got some traction themselves and they look around they're like all oh, this software doesn't look like the software that I use and they find fulcrum and it just looks like what they expect software to look like so those are some you know really big resounding yes'es and then I think other no's are just oh you um, are uh, you don't have this particular feature or this particular very specific uh, thing that's very important to them. And we're, we're just not going to build that yet, we're not going to be that super specific to any one business. And we're not willing to kind of build it into our product, they can use our API to build it custom, but that's a, another big no as well, because a lot of other systems are like Lego sets, right, they can customize it right into the product for you. Uh, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, but it is what some people want.
0: Yeah, I get some calls occasionally about GigaBook, and it'll be like, hey, my my brother's wife is a hairstylist, and I think she'd really like GigaBook. What do you think? I'm like, tell her to use something else. And they're shocked. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, because there's like six products that do exactly that. They're like made for a hairstylist in a salon. And it's just like they do exactly what that person wants, needs, and will need. And in some cases, those things win. Sometimes they don't. All right. So being an entrepreneur, being a founder, it, it's fair to say that it changes you. It, it transforms you, hopefully for the good. It teaches you a lot of things that you may or may not have known about yourself. And many of those, as I mentioned, are trans, transformational. So as a leader, a professional or a person, what are some of the things that being an entrepreneur and a founder have, have really, uh, w- what have you learned? What are you learning or what has really honestly changed you?
1: I think I learned that I'm, I really value my, my own time, my, my alone time, my, my ability to take time for myself and think way more than I did before. I think before, uh, I was able to automate my own job when I worked for somebody else, I like, had a lot of time just to be by myself already. And I worked a, a lot alone. I traveled a lot on to, on for clients. So I think working really hard on something, it really forced me to like prioritize everything else. And a bunch of stuff that I thought was important to me just got cut off that list. And it's surprising, it's shocking how little I miss it uh, compared to before when, uh, when, when I used to think that it was such a really important part of my life. I think also for me, I've I found that it's really I really enjoy passing along knowledge and creating these organizational systems. I never really thought that that would be something that I would be good at or something that I would enjoy. But for me, changing the environment as a way to change behavior and get a result instead of being dictatorial or hierarchical like all the other organizations that I worked within. I think proving that you can do it through environmental changes and do it in a way that's really warm and 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 collaborative and inclusive. I think that's been something that has transformed the way that I think about organizations and people like really fundamentally. I think I believe far more now that people who know nothing about manufacturing or even about SaaS startups can apply their skills, be taught in a very short amount of time and contribute massively to our company. So those, I think, are the, the two kind of personal as well as professional biggest changes for me.
0: Well said. Well said. So I like to end my episodes with what I call the founders freestyle. And I say my episodes because I'm not the only host of Startup Hustle. We're well in, well past the one year mark of turning this show into a network. Make sure you tune in on Tuesdays and hear everything that Andrew Morgans has to say about Amazon and e-commerce. He's the founder of Marknology and Amazon Brand Accelerator. Tune in on Thursdays. And join Lauren Conway, the founder and CEO—or I should—I should say, CEO of Innovate. Her as she tackles a lot of tough questions, topics, and all kinds of stuff. And she often hosts the Top Startups episodes. I believe I'm—I'm I'm, I'm still due to record Minneapolis Top Startups with Lauren. If you haven't had enough startup hustle at that point, come on over to our YouTube channel. It's really easy to find. Go to YouTube and type in startup hustle. It's pretty easy to find. You can learn more from an expanded cast of entrepreneurs that are busy giving you advice, transferring knowledge or showing you what they do. So anyway, back to the Founders Freestyle, you know, I like to give everyone a chance to uh, either sum up things that we have discussed, like what were some of your favorite points, what were anything we missed, or anything else that you'd like to say that could be useful advice to existing or future entrepreneurs. I think
1: with related to full scale and hiring a team and getting them uh, up and running as quickly as possible for me, a really big turning point as well, just thinking about your last question is going from believing that there just were no people that'd be interested in what we're doing here or people that we would be able to get to, to work here to finding that even when the market is really tough to hire, that there are really cool people that are very interested that uh, are, are maybe beyond what we think we deserve to work with on our team at our stage. And, and for me, the best advice is that the people really are the most important part, that as an individual contributor to my last company, I thought I could do everything and, and I could learn to do a lot of things, but without this first generation of, of team members and then now a second and third generation coming into the company, it wouldn't be even one tenth of where we are right now. And uh, putting that investment, no matter how long, how many hours, uh, one one week I, I spent 70 hours interviewing people in, a, in one single week. I don't regret it a single bit. So I think that focus on hiring, making sure that the correct team members, not just the glitziest ones with the best backgrounds, but the ones that are truly interested, that really want to contribute to your mission, finding those people is is, is, is mandatory. It's, it's not avoidable. So committing as much time to that as you need to, I think that's really, really important. So there,
0: there were a couple of things about this conversation that stuck out. Um, one thing is businesses often turn into something that they weren't started to do. You know you mentioned having a consulting company. I think that every every good business that I've owned, been involved with, or invested in, Um, was almost an accident. When it started, you know, you say accidental, like, you're as an entrepreneur, I'm always looking for something. I, I mean, it just it's just kind of inherent in my thought process. And sometimes you stumble across things or you see opportunities. And I think that the advice I want to leave with listeners today is to always be looking for that opportunity in and around your business. A lot of times the things that you've created that, I mean, Gigabook was that way. We started Gigabook was it was a, basically an efficiency tool for a ticket brokering agency I once owned and we built it to to keep track of marketing schedules and and just do things like tell people when their tickets had shipped or remind them that their event was today and these things weren't weren't occurring naturally and we realized hey we have something here we might be able to piece into something else and you know we've used it for a number of different things uh, another thing that stood out is you know you you more or less Supported the the unscientific data that we push forward about raising capital. You know, I, I talk to people all the time. They're like, "Well, I tried to raise money and I couldn't do it." And I said, "Well, how many? How many? How many people did you talk to?" "Oh man, I talked to like 6 I'm like, "You're like fifty short, man. Like, normally I tell people about a hundred. So you know, you, you you did pretty well at fifty. Uh, most people that that have been on the show when, when asked that question are in that fifty to 100 um, you know, pitches. And then oftentimes the domino that wouldn't fall is the first in line to fall later. So, um, so, so tread lightly, just cause you don't get what you want from someone like there's a limited enough pool of those people out there and they all talk to each other. They all work with each other. So um, do what you can to, to be humble, to be gracious. And then the, the, another uh, attachment to, to that last statement is, and we've given this advice so many times on the show, like Focus your efforts on places that invest money in businesses like yours, Um, because that's going to just make things easier. And I think a lot of people get stars in their eyes looking at different funds. But if a fund like, for example, like full scale is technically a service business. I mean, there's a tech component to it, but an enterprise software fund doesn't invest in service businesses. So it's a waste of time to chase those down. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a good relationship with them because those, some, those same people writing checks might turn around and tell someone else to consider writing checks to us. So you still have to handle all of that stuff well, but really when you need the cash and you're looking to get the best adoption and the best feedback, sticking to people that, uh, help businesses like yours and in your industry do better is the smartest money that you're going to find. So. Yep. Yeah. Overall. uh, Yeah. Good conversation, man. I really enjoyed this and I'm looking forward to, to following up with you down the road. Congrats again. And for those of you listening, look for that episode about top Minneapolis startups. See you next time, Sonny. Thank you. Thanks for having me again.